Hey, it's Gabriel and no Alex this week. Unfortunately, the two of us have not had a single day in the last like month where the two of us have had access to both a working microphone and a stable internet connection. So I'm bringing you this episode solo, but we didn't really want to release a full episode without both of us here. So instead, we got thinking about some other ideas. Towards the end of last year, we thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do a wrap up episode where we go back and talk to a bunch of people about what's happened since we interviewed them? And that idea pretty much petered out immediately and we didn't really do anything about it. So when we realized that we weren't going to be able to record together, I reached out to a couple of our early guests on this podcast and was like, hey, do you want to talk about what's happened since? Um, And a bunch of them said, sure. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be digging into those updates and we're starting off with a big one. I'm not going to tell you who've got coming up in the next few weeks for reasons that you'll find out at the end of this episode. But the first update comes from our very first guest on this podcast, Dr. Daniela Texera, who works on the critically endangered glossy black cockatoos of Kangaroo Island, as well as the red-tailed black cockatoos along the east coast of Australia. If you haven't caught that episode yet, now might be a good time to do it. We left off last episode on a kind of positive note with the recent census of the glossy black cockatoos of Kangaroo Island showing that most of them, if not all of them, had seemed to survive the 2019-2020 bushfires. But they've recently released the 2021 census, so I called up Daniela and asked her how it went. Anyway, um... I just want to do a quick catch up basically um, yeah. to do an update on the, the episode. Yeah, sure. Um, and you've been in the field for the last two days. How did that go? I have been. Yeah, it's been great. Finally getting out into the field again after what feels like a lifetime of like not actually doing any field work. I've got some new work happening up in Queensland, um, mm-hmm. which is really exciting. So finally getting to research glossies in my home state. Amazing. Super exciting. Yeah. It's really, really cool. So is it doing similar sort of work with the nest boxes and monitoring them in there? Um, no, actually. It's, it's a little bit different to that, although we are using acoustics. So I'm bringing mm-hmm. in a lot of the stuff that I did do um, in my PhD um, up here, but it's focusing more on glossies in the feeding habitat. So we're sort of just parking nesting for the moment um, because it's such a difficult thing to study, especially here in Queensland where we don't have uh, many records of nesting. Um, so yeah, it's, it's focusing more on, um, the feeding habitat and how that responded after the bushfires and how the glossies are sort of dealing with this new landscape after the bushfires that happened up here. Um, so yeah, it's super exciting, um, and a really big project with lots of collaborators. So yeah, it's awesome. Awesome. And then the, the glossies on Kangaroo Island then, um, has there been much to talk about about what's happened with their state and recovery from the bushfires, um, since we talked to you what, about six months ago now, I guess? Yeah, well, they've actually completed another census um, since we spoke. So the census is something that they used to do basically every year where they would go and count all of the glossies on Kangaroo Island um, because they they know where they all live. So they actually can go and do an entire population count, which is, right. you know, doesn't happen very often in yeah. science. Um, we normally have to estimate these things. Um, so they actually went and did a post-fire um, census in 2020 and then 2021 as well. And in 2020, um, about, what are we thinking, about eight, nine months after the bushfires, Things were looking really good. Um, There was about 450-ish birds that they counted, um, which was basically there was no decline from the pre-fire 
period? Yeah, I think I, from memory that the census came out between us interviewing you and the podcast coming out. And I think we, we mentioned it in like a, in a cutover in a voiceover or something. Yeah, uh, and that was sort of what we left it on was that it seems to be like the early signs are okay. Is that followed through to this year? Not really. Okay. So, but it's to be expected. So the 2021 count happened a few months ago now um, in spring. And yeah, there's been about a 17% decline. So we're looking at about 370 birds mm. that were counted in 2021. Um, the recovery team have just released those figures. I, we can't speak about them. Uh, hey, it's me just jumping in for a quick second here to recap those numbers. So going back to the most recent count we had from before the 2019-2020 bushfires, that was in 2016. That count was 373 glossy black cockatoos on Kangaroo Island. The next most recent one was straight after the fires in 2020, 424 birds there, which was a little hard to pick whether or not the fires had had a big impact straight away because no one really knew how much they'd grown in the four years before 2020. Uh, and then the most recent count we now have is 2021, where there was 377 birds, which, like Daniela said, is a 17% drop on the 2020 count. Let's get back to it. Um, so it's a decline on on 12 months before that, but it's it's not unexpected because essentially what's happened now is that the glossies are, you know, they've been relying on the food that was unburnt mm -hmm. and that was fine, but it's a small amount of food. And now we probably think that, you know, that's that's not able to sustain the population for, for that much longer. So we're starting to see those declines. There's a bit of a lag in the population. So it's a little bit unfortunate, but... Um, you know, the trees do produce food every year, so more trees will start producing food as well. So, yeah. And have you been doing much – have you been down to Kangaroo Island in the last few months? No, I haven't. I haven't actually been back down since um, early in 2020. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I've sort of been a bit removed from it for a little while. Um, some of my colleagues from Kangaroo Island, though, have come up to Queensland to work on our project up here. So we're all still working together, which nice. is awesome. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't actually been back because after my PhD, that was sort of my research on the island mm -hmm. um, wrapped up. And I really wanted to actually move my attention to the mainland because the birds here are suffering a lot as well. So there's yeah. plenty to do up here. Yeah. What yeah. are the sort of similarities then? Uh, the birds themselves, like on a biological level, they're different subspecies is what the kangaroo island is is called but uh are there many differences that you notice in your work between the two it's a really good question um no not really they you know for all intents and purposes they they behave the same they they sound the same mm -hmm. although that's something that i'm going to look at more closely but <laughs> um yeah their ecology seems to be very similar um, but we're not sure how perhaps their movements differ between the two locations um, because on Kangaroo Island it's a unique situation. Of course, they're confined to an island um, and only a small amount of um, feeding habitat on that island. Um, up here, of course, it's a much larger area. So the, the species uh, at its northernmost range is up near Townsville and then it goes all the way down to, say, Melbourne. Mm -hmm. um, so huge distribution. Um, and yeah, there's potential that their um, seasonal movements, um, nesting behavior might differ a little bit. They, a key thing is that they feed on a lot more species of she-oak on the mainland. So on Kangaroo Island, there's only one species that they feed on. That's the drooping she-oak. Um, but up here, depending on where, where you are, they'll feed on different species. Mm -hmm. And those trees can have, um, you know, fairly um, noticeable differences in their biology. So the birds would have to respond 
to the biology of the trees that they're feeding on. And yeah, so there's about five or six or seven species of she-oak that they feed on up here, depending where you are. So yeah, it's all to be investigated. We're so in the dark about glossies on the mainland. Yeah, I mean, there's what, 370 you said now left on Kangaroo Island. Do you have any idea of the numbers that you're trying to work with in this in the populations in Queensland? Not really. Um, the Action Plan for Australian Birds was just released about two, three weeks ago. Um, and in that, we did an assessment of the population size for the southeastern subspecies, which is basically southeast Queensland down to Victoria. Okay. And we estimated roughly 7,500 birds in that population. But that's really just based on um, density and the area of habitat that's left. It's not really based on... Um, any kind of population count or any really robust modelling because we just don't have the data. So it, it'll be in the thousands of birds, um, so a lot better than Kangaroo Island, but still pretty small for a, for a bird population. And, and pretty small for such a big area too. Exactly, exactly, that's right. I mean, some of the other black cockatoo species number in the tens of thousands. So, yeah, still pretty small. So what what are the goals of this new research then? Are you trying to figure out stuff like the numbers and conservation status or is there more to it than that? I have to be a little bit careful with what I say okay. because the project is still um, <laughs> under embargo so I can't give away gotcha. too much. Um, but the main things that I'm really interested in is, well, overall, how do we actually develop a good monitoring strategy for glossies on the mainland where, where we're talking such a big area, they're pretty rare. Like if you find them, you tend to find just a pair, maybe a trio, maybe a small flock if you're lucky, um, but they're pretty hard to find. Um, so how do we actually come up with some methods that we can repeat each year, but also trying to generate some better habitat models and some population models to predict where they might be and where habitat might still be suitable under climate change, that sort of thing. But yeah, it's really about trying to get those long-term data because we, we simply don't have it. We have very few places where we've actually got repeat data through the years. And, and that's critical when it comes to analyzing population trends. Yeah, it's really, it's not so much about population size. That doesn't matter all that much. It's really looking at the trends and what about their very specialized um, feeding behaviors is driving that so we know that they obviously feed only on she-oak. That's like a thing everybody knows. Glossies feed on she-oak. They're called the casuarina cockatoo. That's their other name. But what is it specifically about those trees and that area, that habitat patch, um, that makes them um, occur in that location and not in others that also has she-oak? Because there's plenty of places with she-oak that they don't occur. So we're trying to look at that um, on a really big landscape scale all the way down to the individual tree. So, yeah, hopefully... Yes, answers finally. Yeah. I mean, what does the future look like for glossies then? Is it do they look like they're gonna be somewhat sustainable in holding, you know, at a few thousand birds in this southeast population? Or is it are they still under a lot of, of threats? They are still under threat, no doubt about it. Um, they're still being impacted by development and of course um, climate change and the risk of big bushfires again is really concerning. Um, and no doubt that will happen. We're in a good time now. It's La Nina, so we've got lots of rain. The food trees are currently looking really good. Um, there's heaps of fruit um, on places that two years ago had no food. Um, so things are looking good. But, yeah, I think it's going to be really about sustaining um, the feeding habitat within these large areas like national parks and big private land. I think that's really what's going to um, sustain them. They need, they need, you know, 
for feeding habitat, they need big trees with nesting hollows, they need water, and they need to be safe from predators. Places like national parks can provide all of that, so we really have to um, protect that, um, try and you know, connect them up where we can, like thinking about corridors and how they can move through the landscapes. Um, but in the more developed areas, yeah, unfortunately, their habitat isn't really protected under law. So they're still being cleared, um, which is really sad to see. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation for the glossies. It's not all sunshine and roses, unfortunately. Hey, it's it's me again. I'm just jumping in real quick. Uh, I'm about to ask Daniela one of those classic questions we do about what people could do to help the species we're talking about. As she answers this question, there's what I'm pretty sure are sulfur-crested cockatoos flying off and screeching in the background. I promise we didn't plan this and we probably could have edited it out, but I mean, come on, we're talking about cockatoos and there's some screaming in the background. I just thought it was too perfect. So if you hear cockatoos in this next bit, it's in Daniela's audio. Hopefully it doesn't get in the way of Daniela too much. Um, other than not buying a house that's been built on recently cleared she-oak habitat, what, what's stuff that people can do to help out with this population of glossy blacks on the, on the Australian mainland? Well, there's quite a few projects you can get involved in. So getting data is probably the best thing that people can do um, to help glossies. So scientists like me will actually use that data. It doesn't just sit in a database and get forgotten about. Like I actually do use that information. <laughs> so if you see glossies, um, submit your sightings to anywhere. Um, I'm part of the Glossy Black Conservancy in southeast Queensland. So if you're there, that's a great spot to submit sightings. Um, but bird data through BirdLife Australia is another good spot. Um, if you're in Queensland, there's WildNet and in other states, there's also, you know, government-based databases that you can submit sightings to. So that's really, really helpful. But if you live somewhere that's near glossy habitat, perhaps the birds even, um, you might see them there occasionally. Yeah, trying to protect the feed trees, maybe even planting some feed trees if you have the space. Hey, it's me for the last time in this episode, just jumping in to say really quickly, if you happen to actually live on Kangaroo Island and listening to this, the Kangaroo Island Landscape Board actually gives away she-oak seedlings to landholders for free. So if you happen to be listening from Kangaroo Island, hit up the Kangaroo Island Landscape Board. They should give you some free she-oaks for these guys. Keeping their water sources like free of animals, basically. So <laughs> trying to keep it yeah, protected from any potential predators and that sort of thing is important and free of weeds is important. So yeah, there's a bunch of things you can do and yeah, and spread the word as well. And to quickly recap, if someone does see a cockatoo that looks black, um, what are the telltale signs that it's a glossy and not uh, one of the, the plenty of other species of black cockatoo we have flying around? That's right. We've got five species in Australia, but only three on the East Coast. So hopefully we can figure those ones out. Um, <laughs> so glossies definitely have red in their tails. So that already excludes the yellow-tailed black cockatoo because they don't have any red in their tails. So if you see a black cockatoo with red in its tails, then it might be a glossy or it might be a red-tailed black cockatoo. Um, but key things to look out for glossies are usually that they're in she-oak. So if you can learn what a she-oak tree looks like, um, that's a key you know, a key thing. You're not really going to see red tails sitting in a she-oak tree feeding on she-oak cones. Look for one of the birds in the pair, the female having all this really sporadic yellow all over her head. It's really kind of, you know, random and patchy. That's what the females look like. Um, and they tend to be in small flocks. That's a dead giveaway as well often because it's, it's rare to see red-tailed black cockatoos just hanging out in, as a pair. In the nesting season, you'll see that, but you often find red tails in big flocks glossies are just hanging out as a pair, as a trio, um, or really small flocks, and they're pretty quiet. They don't give a lot of noise. So 
yeah, those are some key things. Awesome. Well, I don't want to keep you for too long. Have you got some time off now after that field work? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to take um, between <laughs> Christmas and New Year's off. Um, okay. <laughs> and probably plan for more field work next year. <laughs> <laughs> that would be right. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that you think um, is worth mentioning um, on what's happened with Glossies in, in the last sort of six months or so? Um, just that it's a really exciting time at the moment. There's so much happening for Glossies. And I just think if people are yeah, interested in getting involved, um, contact the Glossy Black Conservancy or contact me or wh- wherever you live, try and find out if there's a project happening. Because honestly, this is the best time for Glossies that I've, as long as I've been working on them, there's so many people involved. There's so many projects um, starting. Yeah. And I think next year, you know, COVID pending, there should be quite a few citizen science events that people can get involved in. So yeah, really keen to have the community on board and yeah, keep submitting your sightings, keep sending me your photos, happy to chat about glossies if you see them. Amazing. Thank you so much for for finding time uh, at this time of year. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Episode 14. Episode 14. Should we call it a full episode? Yeah, let's call it episode 14. Uh, episode 14 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Gagara, and Garingai people. We pay our respect to the elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks again to Daniela for getting back in touch with us and for talking about the glossy black cockatoos again. She's on Instagram at Daniela Texera. That's T-E-I-X-E-I-R-A. She's also on Twitter at Danny Texera with a couple of underscores at the end. Give Life at a Brink a rating, review, follow, or whatever it is you can do on the podcast app that you're using. We're on Instagram and Facebook as well at Life on the Brink Podcast or on Twitter at A Life on the Brink. There are a lot of interviews coming up that we'll be needing audience questions for. So follow the Instagram if you want to be a part of that. Uh, these are really hard to do on your own. Maybe I can pull in past Alex to help me. If you've just found us, the first 12 episodes of Life on the Brink are already out wherever you're hearing this. Or you can find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. Yeah, that was a little weird. Um, and you got it wrong. There's 13 episodes up now, aren't there? Uh, what an idiot. Keep an eye on your feed over the next few Mondays. We've got a couple more of these update episodes up our sleeves that will be firing out across the month as we lead up to the launch of what we're going to call Season 2 at the end of January. And all things going to plan, which, you know, small likelihood these days, but all things going to plan. Alex should be back for those next few episodes. And I recorded those on my own, so he doesn't know what they're going to be about going in. Should be a little bit of fun. What do you have to say about that, Alex? Wow. <laughs> thanks to Angus Pazina for running the website. Thanks to Carl Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is too much fun. Oh.